Our Father in heaven, we lift up our voices in praise to you, for thou art worthy. And Lord, we will forever remember your grace that brought us to you in the first place, and the grace that keeps us in your care, and the mighty power of grace that keeps us going. Help us to realize today, Lord, that our walk with you indeed is one of a struggle because we are still in this flesh. We are in this weak body because sin still remains in us even though we have been cleansed and forgiven and reconciled and justified, made right in your eyes. Yet, Lord, it is still a battle and we need your grace today. Even to rightly read and understand your word, we need the author, the Holy Spirit, to illumine our minds. We need grace to understand and grace to obey. So pour out your grace upon us this hour by the blessed Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. As you're driving along in America, you're going to see road signs that will give you direction, and you're also going to see warning signs that yell caution and danger is ahead. Uh, I've got some pictures of some signs. There's a ubiquitous general warning sign. Often these signs are yellow, not always, but often. Here's one that you find, dead end. Some of you may be coming here this morning saying that about sums up my life. Dead end. And it is if you don't know Jesus. Here's some unusual ones. I came across this one. This is an airplane that was a road sign. Now, I'm still trying to figure this out. Does that mean you're driving on the runway and uh, you need to get off it quickly? Or is, <laughs> is a plane coming so low that you are in danger? I don't quite understand that one. Or how about this one? This apparently is a car driving off a dock. That's a good warning sign. But I imagine if you get to this place and you see the warning sign, you're probably in trouble. The next one is a bike. This is a picture of someone apparently in the city. It looks like in the city. The guy doesn't have a front tire. Of course he's going to have an accident. I don't know why that, war that warning sign should be back in the garage. This one is a bit dark. I think it's a turkey. <laughs> and you've got the before and the after. Um, this is what will happen if you don't. Here's a very accurate one. Men working, prepared to be annoyed. <laughs> That's why it's orange and not yellow, trying to get your attention. One of my favorites is this one, though. Slow church services. I think it means slow. There is a church holding a service. But it's often very accurate. Church services often are slow. And sometimes not very effective. When we gather together to worship, if our heart is not in it, then we rob God, God of glory. Sometimes we're slow. 
to get involved, slow to believe. And I hope this morning as you come to worship the Lord that your heart is desirous of knowing him, understanding his word, and responding in faith to what he has to say. But some of the most important warning signs are found in the book of Hebrews. Let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. The end of chapter 10 ends a significant part in the book of Hebrews. The theme is that Jesus is greater than everything, and we need to consider Jesus. We need to think about Jesus. We're told to fix our eyes on Jesus in chapter 12. And so the Bible tells us that Jesus, Jesus is greater than the Old Testament prophets who received the word because in the last days, God is speaking through his son. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than the Mosaic sacrificial system, including the priests and the sacrifices that are offered. He's greater than everything. And the center, center section of the book is emphasizing how great the one-time all-sufficient sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for sinners is far superior to the defunct Old Covenant sacrificial system which involved animals. That was God's plan for then, but it was only temporary. And now God has a better plan. It's a new covenant, and it's in his Son who is superior to everything. But if we don't listen to the Son, ah, that's when the warning passages come in. I think this might be number five of six warning passages in the book of Hebrews, and it starts, at least we're going to start, with verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This first section of scripture here, he's talking about the danger of leaving the faith. Another word for that is apostasy. He's talked about drifting away, which is kind of unconscious, but now verse 26 says this is a deliberate sin to leave the Savior. And he answers the question, what can we expect if indeed we leave the faith? Well, he says, if you deliberately keep on sinning, by the way, that... That's a difficult area to translate, and I think the NIV gives us sometimes the wrong impression that this is just the normal keep on sinning of a Christian life. But remember, as a Christian, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to what? Forgive it and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is not a normal Christian falling and sinning, this is a sin. Maybe the old authorized version has a better translation when it says, if we sin willfully, the sin, which is the rejection of the Savior. Not just drifting unconsciously, but deliberately departing 
from the faith. It means giving up on Jesus. It's not an ordinary sin. It's the most grievous sin of all. It's abandoning not just the central truths of Scripture, but the person upon which those truths are based, and that is Jesus himself. What can we expect? Well, and by the way, this is after you receive the knowledge of the truth, so that helps us understand that these are people, and the author is writing to people, who have known the Savior probably for at least a decade. They'd left Judaism, and they were following Christ faithfully, but now they were considering deliberately making a choice to leave Christ after they had received the truth. By the way, in the first century, when a person came to faith in Christ, they immediately confessed that faith in the waters of baptism. We read about that holding on to the hope <clears throat> and the body washed with water, a reference I'm uh, quite sure to baptism. But there were some in the first century who did not want to be baptized. They were hoping to be baptized just before they died because they misinterpreted this scripture that post-baptismal sins could cause you to lose salvation. <laughs> that is a misunderstanding of the teaching of scripture. And by the way, how do you know when you're going to die so that you're baptized at the last moment? It doesn't work that way. After you've received the knowledge and you want to deliberately depart, notice what the scripture says in verse 26. There is no, no sacrifice left for sin. In other words, there's nothing else you can do. The sacrifice of Christ is the great sacrifice. It's God's only plan for someone to find forgiveness and gain reconciliation and enter into the gates of glory by the grace of God. It's Christ alone. And if you reject Christ, there's no hope. If you reject Jesus, you'll find no answer to the sin problem. If you reject Jesus, you put yourself outside of the reach of God's mercy because God's mercy is found in the person of Christ. If you reject Jesus, there is no possible way for your sins to ever be forgiven because Jesus is the only way. I remember, uh, and I, I think they still do this in the Navy for some deep uh, sea diving. They'll have a diver. Remember those old suits with a metal helmet, kind of a grill on the front, weighted boots, and they would jump over the side and they would be tethered to a lifeline. It was an oxygen line that was connected to a compressor on the ship, and, and they would pump down the air so that this person could breathe. Suppose you're the one diving. By the way, I would never Never do that on my own. Some of you I know like to, to go underwater. Uh, that's fine. I'm told it's beautiful down there. I'll just believe you. I'm not going. But suppose someone was down there and they decided, I want more freedom. I don't like to be tethered. I'm going to cut off this oxygen line. We know what would happen. If you cut off Christ... There is no lifeline left, and there is no hope for you whatsoever. So what can you expect? Verse 27. You can expect a 
judgment. There is a fearful expectation of judgment. He mentioned in verse 25 that Pastor Doug read a moment ago that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We should encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And now in light of that, he's talking about judgment because that's what will happen on that final day. Here is a judgment of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is what you can expect if you reject Christ. Now, these guys are playing the same role that Judas did. They were friends, and then they became faithless. They embraced the Savior for a period of time, but now they were thinking of falling away. And if you follow that road, this is what you can expect, to be treated like an enemy of God. Wow. And what will God do with his enemies on the final day? The scripture tells us, consumed with a raging fire of just judgment. It's interesting that we, are, we have a parallel back in chapter 6, a similar warning of once you've been enlightened, once you've acknowledged the truth, to fall away, there's no hope of being reconciled, of being forgiven. That's why this is a, an unusual, grievous, final sin. And you're treated as the enemy of God. The danger of leaving the faith, what we can expect, and now here's an explanation for that expectation in verse 28. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. And you only need two or three witnesses. Notice verse 29. How much more? By the way, this is the same argument that he used in chapter 2. If there was judgment under the law of Moses, how much more severe will the judgment be in this period of grace when you reject God's amazing offer of salvation? How much more severely, verse 29, do you think someone deserves to be punished? What have they done to deserve to be treated like an enemy of God. Well, verse 29 says they've trampled the Son of God underfoot. Just like back in chapter 6, when they crucified afresh the Son of God by rejecting him. You embrace him, but now you leave him and you're treated as God's enemy because you are mocking Christ. Look at that word trampled. In Matthew chapter 5, it talks about salt that is trampled underfoot because it is worthless. Or don't cast your pearls before swine, Matthew chapter 7, who will trample the valuable thing under their feet because they count it as worthless. To leave Christ is to count him as worthless and call him a liar and deny that he is who he said he was and who he said he is. Oh, yeah, you were sanctified by the blood of the covenant, but now you treat it like an unholy thing. So you trample the Son of God underfoot and you treat the blood of the covenant as common. The word unholy is common. It is, 
There's nothing special about it. There's nothing unique about the sacrifice of Christ. So you uphold the Savior as worthless and make a mockery of his atonement. And this is the equivalent of the unpardonable sin. The sin that cannot be forgiven, Matthew chapter 12. Because look at this. You have insulted the spirit of grace. God's gracious spirit offers salvation and you say no. Or I once thought it was good, but now I'm rejecting it because now I esteem that gracious invitation as worthless. It's an insult. The writer of Hebrews has many words that no one else uses in the New Testament. And here's another one of them. It's a grievous slap in the face of the holy God. To insult the Lord. Trample Christ underfoot. Treat his sacrifice as common and not special. And insult the Holy Spirit. That's what apostasy is. And that's why you can expect to be treated like an enemy of God. And then added to that, verse 30. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. Deuteronomy 32. And the Lord will judge his people all throughout the scriptures. This became basically a proverbial saying. God is the avenger. And verse 31, it is a fearful thing. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One of the most sobering portions of Scripture in all the Bible, right here. Just like chapter 6. God is talking about those who profess to be his people, who are now wanting to trade sides and join the enemy. How do Americans feel about um, Benedict Arnold? <laughs> I say the name. I don't know if they teach this in history anymore, but they used to. As a traitor. Now, if you study the Revolutionary War, you'll find out that Benedict Arnold was a hero until he was a traitor. And probably should have been promoted more than he was, and that was one of the problems he got upset. He didn't think he was being treated fairly and wasn't getting the recognition he deserved. And so he had a better offer from from England, and he traded sides. How do you feel about someone like Benedict Arnold? I'm going to name my child Benedict Arnold Smith. Who does that? People in England don't even do that. It's amazing how he was treated once he got there. But the whole point is, that's what these people are doing. They say they're the people of God, but now they want to trade teams. And it's an insult to God. I tell you, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is almost the same quotation or very similar quotation to what we found in chapter 3 in another warning passage, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. 
Now, aren't you glad that God is living? I serve a living Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he's with me, whatever men may say. I know he's with me. I hear his voice of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. See his hand of mercy. He's always near. I know he lives. And that's how I can go on. Great encouragement to the Christian. I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, meaning they are alive, and so am I. I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living. But if you want to run away from God, if you want to reject his son Jesus, it is a fearful thing to think of a living God. Some of you are banking on the fact that God is not living You're hoping at the end that this will be all a dream, that it's a myth, that there's no reality in the person of Christ or sin in heaven and hell, that you'll either go into nothingness or there'll be a universal acceptance of everyone and everything will be fine, that the gospel story is totally wrong. But my friend, there is a living God and to love him, is joy, and to reject him is death. And that's exactly what this warning passage says. It's a fearful thing to reject a living God and then to fall into his hands. So that's been the danger of leaving the faith. Now let's look at the importance of living by faith because there's a change in the text with verse 32. He says, remember those earlier days after you received the light, which is almost the same expression as verse 26, after they received the knowledge of the truth, or the same expressions that were given in Hebrews 6 after you were enlightened. Remember those days when you stood your ground in a great conflict full of suffering. By the way, these few verses from 32 to 35 give us the most insight into the character of of the recipients of this letter. We pick up other clues and add to it, but this really nails it down. And if indeed the author is writing in the early 60s, AD 60, and the temple of Jerusalem falls in AD 70, so that hasn't happened yet, it's very possible that the persecution that he's talking about, this great conflict full of suffering in verse 32, is the persecution that came from the Roman emperor Claudius in AD 49. If that is true, and the author is writing in the early 60s, these guys have been believers for a decade or more, some of them. Remember he said in chapter five, by this time you should be teachers, but you still have someone Need someone to spoon feed you? They've been believers for a long time. So the author is looking back at how they dealt with that very difficult conflict. Verse 32, full of suffering. Verse 33, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. By the way, the word public there is where we get the English word theater. It's almost a transliteration from the Greek into the English. It means to be put on stage. It means to be a public display. So in some way, they were publicly insulted, verbal, 
and persecuted bodily. By the way, the persecution under Claudius didn't quite have martyrdom yet. At least it wasn't as full-blown as it would be when Nero, in, uh, in the uh, later time, began to kill the Christians and then, of course, burned Rome and blamed the believers. But they were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And at other times... They stood side by side with those who were being treated like that. In fact, verse 34, they sympathized with those who were in prison. So notice what they had experienced was tremendous uh, persecution. Not only that, they joyfully, middle of verse 34, joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Now, think about all this persecution. If you go to the very first one, public verbal offense, abuse. You ever gotten that as a believer? If anyone knows you're a believer, then you've gotten some of that at some time. You're a believer? I think idiots are believers. Anyone ever said that to you? You go to church? What a waste of time. I thought you were intelligent. And on and on, the verbal abuse goes, and of course it gets sharper than that. Sometimes there's physical abuse. Not experienced too much of that in America. I think it's on its way, although I've been saying that for a while, so I don't, what do I know? But doesn't it seem like we're not far away from it? Now, if you were, weren't in America, you were in other countries, physical abuse is constant. Would you take that? Would you stand side by side with those who are being persecuted so as to identify with those that are under the hatred or judgment of a government or group of people? Would you stand by them? I remember how hard it was for believers in high school to say that they were a believer or to be identified with someone who was because of the peer system in that particular world. But get this, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property, their possessions. That sounds like James chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you fall into various temptations, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect work. Patience, perseverance, let it have its perfect work so that you will be perfect, complete, entire, mature, not lacking. Some of you are very concerned. I think all of us are concerned about our government and whether we're going to a new system of government where uh, private property is no longer private, but it is under the control of the government. And I'm not in favor of that. That may sound like a political statement, but it's not meant to be a political statement. Um, I'm just saying I want to vote and keep the freedom of individual property. But if we lose that, as many believers have all over the world, would you joyfully give it up? I'm just saying this. These Hebrew believers were pretty sharp compared to modern-day 21st century American believers. And yet they were thinking of leaving Jesus. That's shocking. 
How in the world could they do all of this? Well, the answer is found in verse 34. Because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession or lasting possessions. You stood your ground. You were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You sided and sympathized with those who were being persecuted. You joyfully gave up your own property. Why? Because you saw rewards that were invisible. Literally, verse 34 is, you had lasting possessions that abide. Doesn't that sound like Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your heart is, that's where your treasures are. Don't have treasures on earth where moths will destroy Thieves break in and steal. Rust will corrode. Put your treasures in heaven. Doesn't that sound the same thing? Treasures that everlastingly abide. In other words, their faithfulness way back then was dependent upon their ability to see the unseen and to believe it as real. Faithfulness increases when unseen realities become priorities in our life. And everything is measured by that. If you measure life by what you can see, you are worldly. And your value system is not accurate. Because you're taking in not everything that exists. It's like watching a football game and declaring at halftime who won. Now, sometimes that can be done. (laughs) But the game is not over. There's a whole half to be played. You haven't seen that half play out yet. And when we make decisions based on what we can see, we're missing the reality of the real world, which is unseen. This becomes a strong motif beginning in chapter 11, but it's clearly introduced here. They were faithful because they had possessions that no one could see. So I can lose these because I've got treasure in heaven and I will be richly rewarded. So don't lose your confidence in what you believe because it was true. Don't give it up. That's looking back. That's the importance of living by faith, looking back. Now the importance of living by faith, looking ahead. Verse 36, you have need to persevere, or as the old King James has it, you have need of patience, so that after you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised, those unseen possessions by which you will be richly rewarded. After you've done the will of God, We want instant gratification. We want a reward now. And if you don't give it to me now, I'm not going to play the game. That's what they were saying. Or they were saying, I'm not so sure this is all true. I'm going to give up my confidence. But you have need to persevere so that after you've done the will of God. What a great Topic. Remember, we were introduced to Jesus coming into this world to do the will of God in chapter 10. In the volume of the book, it is written of me, I've come to do your will, O God, a body you've prepared. 
And in the final benediction of chapter 13, for those who are doing the will of God, so important. We're called to do his will, and we will be rewarded after. But the the time between obedience and reward may be rather extensive, and I'm not sure we're up for it because we don't persevere. So he says in verse 7, in just a little while, he who is coming will come and not, do not, will not delay. Probably a quotation from Isaiah 26, uh, also Habakkuk chapter 2. If you go back and read these in the Old Testament scriptures of, of our English Bibles, it may seem like, seem like he took a little liberty in the quotation. But remember, he's quoting from a Greek Bible, the Old Testament translated from Hebrew to Greek. And so you've got authority because you're still dealing with the scriptures as he quotes them. The point is, Jesus is coming soon. The very first verse of Hebrews chapter 1, in these last days, he's spoken by his son. And the day is approaching. As you see the day approaching, make sure that you are faithful. And now he says, in a little while, it will happen, and Jesus will come and I find myself saying this more often than I ever have. Even so, come Lord Jesus. But he's got something for us to do before the rescue. And then he quotes Habakkuk 2. And here's the centerpiece of it all. Verse 38. But my righteous ones will live by faith. Yes, sometimes it's translated in the singular. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Sometimes speaking of the nation of Israel, as it was in the book of Habakkuk, has a many messianic overtones. My righteous one shall live by faith. But now the author of Hebrews applies it to his congregants, to his auditors, to the readers of his letter. And he's including everyone, men and women, the righteous ones will live by faith. And if any of the righteous ones will shrink back, I'll have no pleasure in them. It's interesting that in Habakkuk, there were, when, when this was originally quoted, and sometimes we, we read it like this, the just shall live by faith. That sound a little more familiar? The just shall live by faith. So important that it's quoted in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. When Habakkuk first gave the message, it was the fact that there was a limited time of suffering for Israel. And Messiah would come and deliver them. But they had to move forward during this time of trial by faith. Much as we have here in the book of Hebrews. It's interesting, when Paul quotes it in Romans and Galatians, the focus is on the just shall live. In other words, they shall gain eternal life. The way to get eternal life is by faith. The just shall live by faith. How do I receive what God offers in his son, forgiveness of sin and life that never ends? The just shall live by faith. It's the only way you can come to Christ. But now the focus in Hebrews is different. The just, the righteous ones, shall live by faithfulness. The Greek word can be translated either way. Now it's not so much coming 
to faith in Christ, but it's living out faith in Christ through the difficult times. The just shall live by faith. By the way, this is the introduction to the great chapter uh, that we're going to get to, probably starting next year, Lord willing, Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith and the definition of faith at the beginning of chapter 11. This is the introduction to all of that. The just shall live by faithfulness. By the power of God, by the grace of Christ, they shall persevere. And if any of the righteous ones, those who profess to be righteous, shrink back, the idea of shrinking speaks of cowardice. Well, my soul has no pleasure in them. The displeasure of God is the wrath of God. As we read before, treated like his enemies, consumed in fire, made his footstool, verse 13 says. This is not unconscious drifting away, although that was warned about in chapter 2. This is intentional departing and leaving the Messiah. So the very last verse is actually a summary verse. Verse 39. Two ways to live, two destinies. We're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. If you know about Jesus and you embrace Jesus and shrink back, leave him, depart, apostatize, the scripture says, that leads to destruction and he'll treat you as his enemy. But I love the positive take on this. He, he, he thinks better things of them, as he mentioned in chapter 6. But we, you and I, we're not of those who shrink back, are we? Are we? I wonder if he waited for a response. I wasn't actually waiting for you to respond. But we should say in our heart, no, we're not by God's grace. Right? We're not of those who shrink back although some have. The Lord knows them that are his, but if you depart, what confidence do you have that you're a child of God? But we are of those who believe to the persevering, <coughs> excuse me, to the salvation of the soul, the persevering of the soul. Faithfulness increases when unseen realities become priorities in our life. And if we don't take the warning, we're in big trouble. I don't know if it was true, but it is a fascinating thing to read about the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. In November, the month before, the Hawaiian Tribune Herald, this is November 30th, 1941, had a headline, Japan may strike over the weekend. The front page article, Tokyo desperate as talks collapse, and the article described a possible strike somewhere in Asia or the South Pacific. Now, do you believe what you read in the paper? And maybe many people didn't. Some say that there was advanced knowledge of, a, uh, uh, of an attack 
This is known as the advanced knowledge conspiracy theory. And some government officials uh, have joined on to this, at least back in 1944. A 46-page paper was written to show that, indeed, our officials were told about the attack and knew it was going to happen, but did nothing. They weren't caught off guard. And why did they do nothing, according to this paper? So that America would be attacked and we would be drawn into the war and side with the Allies. That may not be true. But to think of hearing a warning like that and rejecting it turns your stomach because of the lives that were lost. Even worse is to hear a warning from Christ and reject it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us this day as we hear your word to realize that these are serious warnings. This is not the word of man. This is not a newspaper article. It's the truth of Scripture. And we must not depart. Teach us to live by faith and not by sight. To see those things that cannot be seen and suffer the reproach of Egypt because we have everlasting rewards waiting. Help us to see Christ exalted at the right hand of the Father, reigning as sovereign of the universe and coming soon to bring vindication to his truth, his name, and his people. Lord, may we be among those who don't shrink back but press on by faith. And because of Christ, experience the salvation of our souls. In your name we pray, amen.